0: Today we start a new chapter in the book of Romans, so we will be going through the first six verses of chapter 7 in the book of Romans. So let's get into the text. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans 7, beginning verse 1. The infallible and inerrant authoritative word of God reads as follows. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage accordingly. For while we were living in the flesh our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we served in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code this is the word of the Lord let us pray Heavenly Father thank you for your word Thank you for your holy law, which shows us that we are incapable of meeting its demands for perfection. Yet, thank you for your Son Jesus, whom you sent so that he can live the perfection that was never to be accomplished on our own by trying to follow the law. May your Holy Spirit then speak to us this morning as we explore this truth, that we may be convicted and turn in faith to Christ. It is in the name of Jesus that we ask this things. Amen. You may be seated. Today's sermon is titled, Joined to the Law or Joined to Christ. Joined to the Law or Joined to Christ. Last time, as we were wrapping up chapter 6 of Romans, Paul was teaching on the notion that we are slaves of who we serve. And we all serve something or someone. If a person does not serve God through faith in Jesus Christ, then they are serving sin. And Paul personified sin and made the contrast between following sin as your master or following God as your master in a slave-owner relationship. Today, we come to a passage in which Paul uses now a second analogy. He used a slave master. Now he uses the analogy of marriage in his illustration, the law of marriage specifically. And this is an example to explain what. What is Paul trying to explain to us here? Paul has argued that a person is made right before God, a person is justified before God by God's grace through faith in the work of Christ. He went and gave Father Abraham, as the example of the just, shall live by faith, just as Father Abraham was justified by faith. So then if people are made right before God by faith and not by winning or by working themselves to be good enough, then the question is asked in Romans 6.1 and Romans 6.15, which is the following. 6.1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then in Romans 6.15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Paul answers those questions with a strong, with an emphasis, saying no, may never be. Another translation, God forbid. Anyone who proclaims faith in Christ but continues to live a lifestyle of sin is at best a very mature believer and at worst has a false profession of faith so then back to the question if I'm saved by grace, not by what I do then I should sin away and be fine after all God would forgive, right? Paul says no he gave the illustration that people can relate in human terms, right? we went through that last time and now he's going to go through the example, illustrating in marriage. Now, isn't it true that when someone is speaking, when somebody's teaching, or when somebody's trying to pitch something to you, and they use an example, and that example relates to you specifically and personally, we tend to now, now they have an ear, right? So if we're seeing somebody speak to us and we say, Hey, let's take a, a musician as an example. Now you got my attention. What, what about a musician, right? Or take a business owner as an example, or someone who's engaged, or someone who's pregnant. All said, when the illustration is personal to us, now we're more engaged. So, hopefully, through the text this morning, with the example of the law of marriage, we will become more cognizant to grasp what Paul is teaching. The illustration of the law of marriage. When we talk about the biblical law of marriage we have this concept that a man and a woman unite together in marriage and they are bound to one another and it is only applicable while both people are alive. The moment that death do them part then they are no longer obligated to their spouse. Okay. So in that manner, Paul says, are we joined to the law, sort of married to the law, or are we joined, are we married to Christ? And what is Paul main point in in this text? His main point is as follows: One who has died with Christ no longer is tied to the condemnation, to the binding of, to the demands of the law. We're going to hash that out to to, uh, to see exactly what Paul means. And that truth, as we're going to see, is going to be seen by the fruit in a person's life. By seeing the fruit in our own life, we're going to be able to get a good grasp of whether we are still bound and condemned by the demands of the law, or are we now joined to Christ and are we bound to Christ and His grace and His love and His forgiveness and His mercy and now obey, showing fruit, okay? So first off, the illustration. Paul is going to give three three ways in which this applies. First is the illustration. Second is the application. And third is the implication. The illustration will be the biblical law of marriage. The application will be how that law of marriage relates to Paul's point. And then the implication will teach us the effects of being joined to Christ rather than being joined to the demands of the law. So let's take the first one, biblical law of marriage. Paul states his premise in verse 1, Romans 7, 1, which is as follows. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? So this premise, the law, specifically the moral law, its demands in this entrapment of all human beings, right? The law. This is not only binding as long as the person is alive. Oh, I'm sorry. It's only binding as long as the person is alive. Somebody who dies, the law has no binding on them, right? Somebody's dead. You can't expect them to do anything. They're dead, right? Now, there's a going back and forth. It's almost a play on words when Paul uses the phrase, Being alive or being dead. So let's not confuse those two phrases. First, God's law is binding on those that are alive. What does that mean? Everyone who's born. The demands of the law are a burden upon us. Everyone is bound. Everyone who is born. Everyone who is alive. Now, all who are alive in the flesh, using the negative connotation that the Bible uses, those that are alive in the flesh, meaning... Are unregenerate they are not Christians those who are only alive in the, in the flesh the law is binding on them as well even though they're disobeying even though they have no concept have no interest in God the burden of the demands of the law are still upon them those that are born and those that are in the flesh only right unregenerate now what this phrase does not mean where it does not apply is to those who are alive in the spirit, okay? The binding of the law brings condemnation. Therefore, it doesn't apply to those that have been born again, to those that are Christian, to those that are regenerate in heart. Those have died with Christ, are dying to self daily, and are alive in the spirit. The demands of the law, the condemnation of the law does not apply to those that are alive in the spirit. That's Paul's premise in verse 1. Now, those that have died with Christ are alive in the Spirit and should not live a lifestyle of sin so that grace may abound. Paul has said they're no longer servants of sin, but should follow the demands of God in obedience because. They are new creations wanting to obey rather than wanting to disobey. The desires, the inclinations of our hearts and our minds and our habits and our daily lifestyles should be regenerated. We have new desires. We are new creatures. Okay? So in verse 1, Paul is saying, The law is binding only on those people as long as they are alive. Now, alive in the flesh, all are born, but not the ones that are alive in the spirit. Okay? Okay? Now, verses 2 and 3, now the illustration comes. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now let us pause there. This exposition of the book of Romans is not an exhaustive lesson on biblical marriage. That is not what it is. Paul is merely using that as an example to prove his point about being dead to the law and being alive in Christ. Okay? However, with that said, we can make some observations. To that, we're going to look at Matthew 19. 4 to 6, which correlates what Paul has just stated. This is the standard of God. This is the foundational truth by which civil society in general has flourished. And most importantly, the way that God has designed marriage, the law of marriage. Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. This is Jesus talking and it says, Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. This is the very words of God incarnate himself. And the observations goes as follows. First, it says that God created human. God was the creator of the human beings, and He made them male and female. There's no in between. There's no choice. There is no well. Let me see what uh, what I come up with. Right. We are living in a society in which. If you say that this is the the sign that God has given, and even to an unregenerate mind that would not be willing to be fooled, this is just nature. This is the design that God has put into place, male and female. I was filling out a medical application last night at the request of my lovely wife, and I come to a question that says, gender assigned at birth. What kind of nonsense is that? I tell my wife, I do not trust submitting myself to a health professional that has been deluded and brainwashed by the nonsense of gender ideology. The same thing will apply with pediatricians that take care of kids. What is their stance? Have they also been washed away by the nonsense and truly the satanic nature of this movement? My friends, we are living in perilous times in which people, may not be everyone, but especially celebrities, politicians, the influencers, they are brainwashing your kids right now, whether your kids are little or whether your kids are teenagers or adults. To the point where Are you going to be able to trust a health professional to know that God made them male and female? It's tough. We are living in a tough world. God is creator. He created them male and female. Secondly, marriage is the joining of a man and a woman to live as one. Not three people. Not a combination of Whatever it is that your heart desires, no. One man, one woman, united as one. Thirdly, this commitment, Jesus says, is for a lifetime. Now we're starting to see the, the law of marriage take place. The commitment is for a lifetime until death separates them. Many of us said so and agreed to and contractually, covenantally agreed to that. In our marriage vows okay so Paul makes the appeal to those who know the law Jesus here is teaching and proclaiming truth going back to Genesis chapter 2 this is the law of marriage marriage one man one woman coming together for a lifetime end of story now problem you have to argue with God now this law of marriage exhibits a particular commitment that is binding that brings those two together, the man and the woman together. Their relationship is to be monogamous, no third parties, no flirting to see if there's something happening, nope, monogamous. We recall that a lot of the marriage vows say that we are forsaking all others, right? Envision this as somebody is Uh, open for business, and then all of a sudden, nope, you're closed for business. I'm done, right? Secondly, there's a conjugal right, a commitment to intimacy. That's another way in which you're bound to your spouse, the law of marriage. Thirdly, we see that the command when a husband and a wife come together is to be fruitful and multiply. You must produce fruit. You must bear children. And then, the law of marriage also tells us that there ought to be submission in the Lord. How so? The wife submits to the husband as the head of the household. And the husband submits to Christ, ultimately. Monogamous, conjugal, producing fruit, submission. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are some of the things, some major things, that the law of marriage implies, that the law of marriage bounds you to your spouse. The moment the spouse dies... These commitments no longer apply to you, right? You cannot exercise this rights when your spouse is dead. In Paul's example, if applied further, if the wife moves on while her husband is still alive, or as it is referred to nowadays, if the couple cites irreconcilable differences, whatever that means, or there's a big disagreement or the husband or the wife through a fit of anger and they kick you out and everything seems to be wrong. That Nope, that is not a reason, biblically speaking, for divorce. It does not absolve the spouse, especially the one seeking a divorce, of his or her commitment. Never, so don't even flirt with that. And Paul says, if they do forsake that commitment then they are in adultery if they go after someone else. Okay? In short, upon death, the law of marriage that is binding those two people is no longer applicable. In that same manner, then, Paul says, that's how it's like when the demands of the law had to bound but then you become released from that and you are joined to Christ. In like manner, let's look at that. The application, which is the relation of the law of marriage to the point Paul is making. We're going to look at Romans 7, the first half of verse 4. It says, likewise, here it is, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Paul says to the church of Rome, Just as a spouse who is no longer bound to her dead husband, Paul says, just like that, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? It says, you have also died. This is again sort of a play on words. So, what does Paul mean? Paul says, Christian, you at the Church of Rome, and he's telling us today through the Holy Spirit, you people of Acts Reformed Church, you have died what? died? yep the question is have you died? let us take a quick look at some of the references we can look in scripture that talks about Christian people being dead Romans 6 8 Colossians 2.20 Colossians 3.3 3. 2 Timothy 2.11 reads as follows now if we have died with Christ next one if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Next. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. The last reference. The saint is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. My friends, if you are a Christian, the Bible says that you have died with Christ. It's also one of the beautiful representations in baptism. You have died to the old self. You have died to sin. You have died to the binding, the burdens that the law laid on you and you have become alive with Christ. Have you died? You have. You're dead to the world and you are alive spiritually in Christ. Now he says, you have died to the law. What does that mean? You have died to the law. Okay. Let's look at Galatians 2, 19 through the first half of 20. It says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So Died to the law. Somebody may ask, well, isn't the law good? Like, Why, why would I die to it? We'll come back to verse 4 in a minute. But let's take a look at why it is it. Why is it that the law, although it is good, the law is not your friend. The law will come and crush you. If you try to mess with it and try to meet the demands that the law is laying on you. Romans 7, 5 reads as follows. For a while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit. For death. Living in the flesh, that is, not living in the spirit, but giving in to the desires that this world has to offer. It is almost as if when we tell our children not to do something, they do it, right? That's how we are with the law of God, with the moral demands of the law. We know we shouldn't, we know what we should do, but we don't do it, we disobey. The sinful passions within our heart are aroused by the law, which we fall into with our physical body. We, we sin with our eyes, with our tongue, with our members. Galatians 3, 21, reads as follows. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Right? Isn't the law good? It seems like we have a conflict here. Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then the righteousness would indeed be by the law. So then we realize that God's moral law does not and cannot give life. That way, That's why there's no such thing as somebody being a good person. Or if you ask somebody in the street, which some of us have done often, Why do you think that you're going to be okay when you die and you meet God? And they say, well, I mostly did good things. There's no such thing. Alluding to I'm mostly a good person is taking the weight of the law and putting it upon yourself voluntarily, thinking you're going to be able to hold it. No, it's going to crush you and you'll be condemned. So then the key is God's moralized good. It gives us the standard that God expects, which is perfection. But the standard itself does not give us perfection. On the contrary, it condemns us because we cannot keep it. Galatians 3.10 reads as follows. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. You want to win God's favor by being a good person? That verse is for you. For all who rely on the works of the law, I'm a good person, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. And do them. You want to keep the law, you better be perfect. And since you're born with original sin, from the opening of the box, if you will, you are already guilty. No such thing. So then if you want to become right with God, it cannot be by meeting the demands of the law, by meeting the binding that the law has on you. It's impossible. You can't do it. Then how? If we cannot keep God's law, if instead of attempting to be good and trying to keep it, we bring condemnation on ourselves, then how can we do it? Galatians 2, 16. Yet we know that a person is not, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that also we believe, so that we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one, not me, not you, not the person that says they're a good person or that they've done more good things and bad things because that's not even the case. No one will be justified by being a good person. The perfection that the law shows gives us the understanding, the realization that we are lost. Anyone living outside of faith in Christ has the binding of the law, the demands on the law, crushing them. They will be condemned by the law they think they can keep. Now why is that? Because God demands perfection. And we do not have perfection. Thanks be to God, as Galatians 2.16 reads, that we are justified not by works, that's a dead end but saved by faith in Christ so then faith in Christ means that we have died with Christ and it means that we have died to the binding to the demands of the law in order to be righteous that's the key faith in Christ we die with Christ and we die to the law and we have been made alive spiritually now we see it now we understand that we cannot be good And that we need God's spirit to enable us to obey. So then, if we have died with Christ, and the demands of the law are not binding on us, then who's going to meet the law? What about the law? Can it go without being met? We touched upon this in our Sunday school today. Takes us to the last portion. The implication, the effects of being joined to Christ. Going back to 7, 4. It reads, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another. Right? You died just like a spouse dies. And now you can go and belong to another. To who? To him who has been raised from the dead. In order that we may be, that we may bear fruit for God. Right? The wife is married to the husband. The husband dies. She now can go and belong to another. We, being dead in our trespasses and sins, God has mercy on us, gives us salvation. Now the demands of that law are no longer binding. Now we belong to another, that is to Christ. You are no longer bound to the condemnation that the law brought to you. Rather, you are now bound to Christ. It says to him who has been raised from the dead. that's the same promise that he gives us. That's the punchline of Paul's analogy. No longer belong to the law. You're dead to it. And now you belong to Christ. But then the question remains, what about the demands of the law? I didn't keep it. That's right, you did not Your new husband, your new owner, he's the one who did it. He's the one who is your head. He's the one who has provided what the law required the legal demands like the debt collector that's knocking on your door and what he's collecting is going to be your life okay, this is life or death you owe somebody a hundred bucks, you know, whatever no, but here, life or death it's going to come and collect and it's going to take your life and your soul forever that's the kind of debt that you're bound to by the law so if you don't pay for it, who does? Providentially, we just looked at the scripture earlier today. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Here it is. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Let me stop there. That's a description of someone that God is going to save. Someone who says, well, I'm actually a pretty good person. I've done pretty good things. I've gone to church. I serve at church. I give to charity. I'm involved in good causes. Remember, Jesus said he came for those who are in need of a physician. Meaning, those who are dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart. That's who Jesus came for. Those people, it says, God made a life together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with this legal demand. There it is. Everyone who is born, every human being has a rap sheet of debt that you have collected. And that debt collector is coming. You may be able to get away or scam someone for not paying them or getting away with it. Or the record got lost in the mail, whatever. This record, this debt that we have, this binding that we have with the law. It's going to be paid. Thanks be to God. says that record that stood against us with its legal demands that was canceled, that was paid for. I continue. This, that record that he, Jesus, set aside by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing by triumphing over them, in Him, the legal demands of the law are going to be paid. We are either going to pay for those with our own soul in eternity in condemnation in hell, or our new husband has paid for it, Jesus. We no longer belong, No, we no longer are bound to the, to the demands of the law in which the collection debt for that is going to be our eternal soul. We're no longer bound to that. Christ, through His grace, His mercy, His compassion has redeemed us and paid that demand for us. So then, wrap it up, coming back to Paul's theme. This being the case, we have died to the law, no longer being crushed by his demands. So then what? Yeah, let's live like pagans now. We're good. The whole point is Paul saying, no, if you go and live likewise, that means you're not even saved. And he's speaking to the church at Rome. He's talking to a church. He's not preaching out in the street. He's talking to us, my brothers, my sisters. If we keep sinning, I say, well, He's going to forgive me, right? Paul says, no. That means nobody has paid your debt. And you are still being crushed and will be crushed by the demands of the law. Paul is urging us then to exercise the freedom we have in Christ of being citizens of heaven, of his kingdom, so that sin is not our master. We're not dominated by sin. Let us go again to Romans 7, the last portion of verse 4, and then verse 6, which is the last verse. It says, In order that we may bear fruit for God, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what has God done? What is indicative in the teaching for today's sermon? What has God done? What what has he done? Well, Jesus has paid the demands of the moral law so that we are no longer condemned by it for not keeping it or for trying to keep it. In this sense, then we are dead to the demands of the law for the purpose of justification. We are dead to that. We have nothing to do with the law. Just as if you're married and your spouse dies and now you belong to other. How gross would it be to go back to your dead husband or your dead wife and try to be intimate with them. A dead body. This is horrible. You no longer belong to the old. You belong to the new. What is then the imperative? What must we do? It tells us in this last passage, that we must bear fruit. If we have died with Christ, if we are alive in God, if we are dead to the demands of the law, then we must bear fruit. This is the implication. We must serve in the new way of the Spirit. So then let us ask ask ourselves this morning, take inventory of our very life. Are you joined to the law and thus condemned or are you joined to Christ this morning? This has to do with our spiritual state. If you are joined to the law, if you're trying to be good, if you're trying to earn God's favor and this is not only for unbelievers, this is also for religious people. If you're trying to show how well you keep the law, my friends, i got bad news for you. You're going to be crushed by the demands of the law. You need salvation. And if you are saved, even if you're struggling with sin, but you're fighting with it by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you need sanctification. You need to progress in your walk with the Lord. You need to sin less. Right? I often say that. it's Not you're sinless, you sin less. If you look back a week, a month, a year, and you're at the same sin state that you were, you're not sinning less. You made no progress, and the Spirit of God is not in you. So then, how do we bear fruit? Well, are you being faithful with what God has in your life right now? Are you praying? Are you serving others? Are you serving God's people? Are you being a good witness? In short, can you point me to some fruit in your life? Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you, but if I were to ask you, Hey brother, hey sister, can you show me some fruit in your life? Would you be empty handed or could you actually point me to some fruit? What is the evidence that Jesus has paid your moral debt? that evidence is going to show by the fruit in our lives. So we'll close with two last passages here. Galatians 5.22-24 which talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See how this language is all embedded in the writings of Paul. If I don't have self-control, if I don't have gentleness, if I don't have faithfulness, if I don't have kindness, I have not crucified the flesh. I have not died with Christ. Now, could we slip and fall? Yes. Yes. But if I consistently, consistently, instead of showing the fruit of the spirit, I show the opposite. Right, I I love you as long as you perform, otherwise I'll hate you. We're at peace, but don't upset me. You know, I've had enough patience with you, now I'm upset. If you're good to me, I'm gonna be kind, but otherwise I'm gonna be harsh to you, my brothers and sisters. If that is our mindset, we have not crucified the flesh. Fruit in our lives then is obeying God's commands to show that we have a new owner. We have a new husband, if you will. So that we may not go back to the old husband, to the old demands of the law, to the crushing of the law that we had. To the old slave master, which is sin, because we now belong to another. Galatians 5.1 warns us of that. And I'll close with that. It says... For freedom Christ hath set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, if we have been crucified with Christ, if we have died with Christ, we have died to the legal demands of the law. May you give us faith. May you give us understanding. And Lord, if we're not sure about this, may we talk about this amongst ourselves. May your Holy Spirit prompt us to seek assurance that we have died with Christ and that He has paid our debt. And for that we thank you, Lord, because by grace, through faith in Christ, we have been made new. May we live accordingly and show fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.